is too hard for you. And so, Father, we pray as we consider your word this morning that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that we would be rooted in Christ, built up in Christ, and established in our faith unto your glory. And so in Jesus' name, we ask and pray these things, and amen. Please be seated. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too marvelous for our great God? Now I know what we confess, which is to say I know what we say with our lips, that this great God of ours made all things, that he created the highest of heavens, he created the depths of the ocean, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What could be too hard for this God? That this same God unravels every single event, not simply in your own life, but in all of human history by way of his precise purpose. What could be too marvelous for this great God? That this same God will come again and he will eradicate all evil by his powerful word and usher in new heavens and new earth for all eternity. What could possibly be too hard for this great God? This is what we confess. But is it what we believe? It's a remarkably simple question. But perhaps... The answer is not all so easy. And so, Christian, I would ask you once more, is anything too hard, too marvelous, too wonderful for this great God? And I ask you that question because you may have noticed from our text this morning that an older saint by the name of Sarah was put forward that very question. And indeed, she seems to stumble over it that when this covenant promise is laid out before her, it seems just a little too lofty, a little too exalted, a little too wonderful, such that her only response is that of laughter. But as the story goes on, much like the Christian life, she would go from laughing to believing, from snickering to embracing. And so my hope for us this morning is that our great God would likewise increase our faith to meet with our confession that indeed nothing is too hard for our great God. And so we'll walk through this text in two simple portions, looking firstly at the appearance of the Lord in verses 1 through 8, and secondly, the assurance of the Lord in verses 9 through 15, and all of it under this main point, main heading, that nothing is too incredible for those in fellowship with God, because nothing is too marvelous for him. And so firstly, looking into the text, let's look at the appearance of the Lord. Starting in verse 1, you'll notice, like last week, we have another theophany. The text says that the Lord appeared, or he made himself visible in this accommodated form to Abraham, which immediately is our clue to perk up, to take notice. Because whether it's the Garden of Eden, whether it's the Tower of Babel, whether it's the call of Abraham, what we've seen repeatedly throughout the book of Genesis is that the heart of true religion is not that man goes up to God, but just the reverse, that God comes down to be with man, that God graciously condescends to be with us, which, as we will see, soon takes the form of an intimate covenant meal. 
But before then, you'll notice, too, the ambiance of this meal is, is not quite ideal. Verse 1 says, it is hot, really hot, perhaps Texas hot, if you can think of it that way. And now is likely the time for a well-earned siesta for, for Abraham. And who knows, perhaps just as his head is nodding and bobbing off and he's dozing asleep, he's awakened, he lifts up his eyes, as verse 2 says, and behold, there's these three men before him. Now, I'm not sure about you, but if I've been working all morning in the scorching heat and now it is finally midday, finally time to put the feet up, in the shade and have a little bit of respite, I highly doubt I would have the same reaction that Abraham has, is that he sees these three men and like a soldier snapping to attention, he snaps into hospitality mode. Because remember, we the reader, we know immediately what Abraham has yet to discover, that this is an appearance of the Lord God himself. It's not entirely clear exactly when Abraham begins to recognize that this is Yahweh himself coming to meet with him. And at first, Abraham likely thinks these are just ordinary travelers, and yet he shows them this extraordinary hospitality. Verse 2, you see that he runs, something a dignified man would not do in that, that culture. He bows then to the ground and gives this honorific title, Lord. And then he implores them, verse 3, if I have found favor in your sight, do not go by me. Please, 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 if nothing else, allow me to serve you. And you can scan verses 4 and 5, and you see just how earnest Abraham is in this hospitality mode. He would rival the very best waiter at a fine restaurant. He says, how about some water to wash off those dusty feet? Slake your thirst. Maybe some rest, some refreshment. Maybe some homemade bread. And then, only then, would I wish you well on your next journey. Abraham is in every way the exact opposite of the corrupted and so-called hospitality that we will find next in the land of Sodom. And so we would be remiss if we skipped over this without commending the hospitality of Abraham. It is as Hebrews 13 says that we just read, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That New Testament verse very likely speaking of this exact episode with Abraham unwittingly showing kindness to angels. And just hear that command, do not neglect. Strikes right at the core, doesn't it? We can be nearly certain that any time Scripture says, do not neglect this, we'll very likely to be tempted to do exactly that, to neglect it. So it begs of us the question, do you pursue hospitality? Are the doors of your house, even more so, are the doors of your heart, are they open? Are they welcoming to show kindness to strangers? Or does your so-called busyness, your own agenda, your own comfort prohibit you from obeying this command? Or like Abraham, would you set aside your comfort and convenience and welcome fellow believers, even strangers? Hospitality is not a, a quaint old-fashioned southern ideal for nice people who like to cook. It is a decidedly Christian virtue, an enduring Christian virtue. Because to be hospitable is simply to imitate our great God who welcomes strangers and sinners into his family. 
And Abraham, you can be assured, as the man of faith, has personally experienced that. Personally gone from being a stranger of God to the friend of God. And so it's no coincidence we find him here practicing this generous hospitality. Do you know that kind of love this morning? If you're here this morning and not a Christian, you may well have a picture in your mind of God who is a snubbing God, a shunning God, a snobbish God, a God who is unwelcoming. Well, you need to know this morning that the true and living God is a most hospitable God, that he welcomes above all and foremost sinners, strangers, those who are at a hostile distance to him due to sins against him. And what good news. It's not that you invite God. It's just the reverse, that God would invite you to go from being stranger to saint through simple faith and repentance through Jesus, his son. Well, as the story continues in verse 6, Abraham continues to abound in hospitality. Only now, for the first time, Sarah is brought into the mix. I have to confess, I, I nearly chuckle every time I read these verses. Verse 6, you notice Abraham, he just pokes his head into the tent and says, Sarah, quick, grab a boatload of flour and make those cakes you know everybody loves. And I think in our modern context, you think of the, the thoughtless husband, he, he comes in the door, throws his gear down, honey, quick, I just invited the entire softball team over for dinner. Quick, make up that casserole that you know everybody loves. But Sarah obliges, and Abraham continues, even so generous as to kill the fattened calf. And as verse 8 notes, with utmost sincerity, Abraham simply stands by his guest to watch them eat. Remember, from Abraham's perspective, this is not an opportunistic meeting. These are ordinary travelers. This is not the closing of a business deal for him. There is nothing to gain. It is sincere as it could possibly be. Is as the Lord Jesus said in Luke's gospel, when you throw a banquet, invite those specifically who cannot repay you, and you will be rewarded in the resurrection. And Abraham, in a sense, he gets an early reward, a down payment of that reward immediately in the form of nothing less than communion with the living God. This is no mere social visit. Remember, we began this section, verse 1, with the clear writing. This is the appearance of the Lord God himself. This is a visitation of Yahweh. There is so much more than hospitality at work. Louis XIV, who was king of France, was an eccentric king to say the least. He was known for his vanity. He fancied himself to be God on earth even not letting his multiple affairs convince him otherwise. He owned the world's largest diamond. He stored it in the world's largest palace, the Palace of Versailles. But it seems his vanity would reach a height when the dinner bell rang, because when the dinner bell rang, King Louis was known for his private meals. Now just imagine, there's this king in an 87 million square foot palace, Dining alone, far too exalted, far too lofty to be found dining with some commoner. Except, as history has it, there was one, named, one man named Moliere who was the king's friend, 
who won the king's favor, and on occasion, he would dine with his friend. Church, how much greater is the reality unfolded in Genesis 18? That our great God, having no vainglory, but all true glory, our great God, of whom not even heaven and the highest of heavens can contain, our great God, who dwells in unapproachable light, comes down to share a meal under a shaded tree with Abraham, the man who had his favor, the man of faith. And why would God do this? But because Abraham was the friend of God. God, who is infinitely blessed in himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, comes down to visit his friend and share a meal. Mark it well, this is the only time in the Bible prior to the incarnation, that God shares a meal with someone. It is a most unique privilege of Abraham's, and yet, yet, it's a privilege we see extended to simple Christians like you and I in the New Testament. You might remember John's Gospel, John 15, when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he's likewise sharing a meal with the disciples, telling them, making this outrageous statement, no longer do I call you strangers. You are my friends. For all that the Father has revealed to me, I have made known to you. God shared a meal with Abraham, which is a way of saying he shared himself. An act of most intimate fellowship and covenant kindness reserved for the friend of God alone. And Christian, the same. In fact, we could even say better is true of you and the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Lord Jesus, who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, says to you, lowly Christian, you are my friend. And it is so not the shallow Trivial concept of friendship we might carry around in our brain is a robust friendship. A friendship that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. A friendship that says, I will reveal to you the most delightful secrets of salvation. A friendship that says, how about the greatest love that there is? I would even give up my life for you to redeem you for sin, from sin because you are my friend. Christian, are you growing in that grace this morning? Friendship means fellowship. It is, of course, no one-sided affair. It is a cultivated communion. Do not be content with mere acquaintance when you could have intimate fellowship. His friendship is for those who seek him diligently, who obey him wholeheartedly, and who walk in a manner pleasing to him, like Abraham, the friend of God. Well, there's a word on the appearance of the Lord, and let us now look at the assurance of the Lord in the second half of this scripture, starting in verse 9. There's a scene from Chronicles of Narnia, if you're familiar with the story, where the great lion Aslan, he stumbles upon three out of the four main children, the Pavenzi children. And he notices that one of them is not there. One of them probably was not where he was supposed to be. And then Aslan, a great wise lion, has this very long pregnant pause. 
before he asked the question, where is the fourth child? And if you know the story, it's as if Aslan was really making much more of a statement than he was asking a question. It's as if Aslan was saying, I know where the fourth child is. I know what he's doing. I know what's going on. I know him much better than he knows himself. Seems like that's what Aslan was up to. And on a similar note, that's very much what you have in verse 9. These seemingly ordinary travelers break protocol of the ancient Near Eastern custom, and then they turn to Abraham, and Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? Now remember, up to this point, they've never met Sarah. They may not even know Abraham is married from his perspective. Something is up in asking that question. It is more of a statement than it is a question. Now we don't entirely know, what does, what does Sarah know at this point? How much did Abraham clue her in on? Was Abraham the typical non-communicative male and failed to communicate everything that was going on? We don't entirely know. But what we do know is that God knows our frame and God knows our weaknesses. And here comes this assurance, this kind confirmation of God's covenant promise in verse 10, emphatically, I surely, I will, I will return to you and you will have a son. A son will be given to Sarah. Like all parents do, we, we remind our children from time to time of the manners of the age, what it is to, to be polite, what are our customs. One of which is that in general, it's, it's impolite to ask somebody their, their age, particularly if you just met them. That you don't want to imply that they are old. In fact, they're worthy of honor if, if so. Well, it's as if the Hebrew text in this instance cares absolutely nothing about our manners in verse 11 to make it undeniably clear, painfully reading. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. How old? Well, looking at verse 11, they were advanced in years. Even more direct, the NAS translation, a little less euphemistic, puts it this way. They were advanced in age. For my money, King James Version is the clear winner, being almost rude reading it this way. Abraham and Sarah were old, well-stricken in age. <laughs> but perhaps you say, well, there's still a window of possibility, right? I mean, there's still a sliver of hope. While it would be an amazing story, certainly a long shot. But humanly speaking, it seems the window of possibility is just cracked ever so slightly open. You can look as the verse closes out, so too closes that window of possibility in verse 11. These conclusive words, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, period. In other words, the prospect of having a child is now rightly to be regarded as impossible. To call it improbable is far, far too weak of a statement. It is impossible. And so in that context, it is hardly surprising what comes next. That as this news reverberates onto Sarah's mind and her consciousness and the facts at hand and her circumstances, she overhears this and she laughs. A comedian once commented on his craft when he said, I'm not so much concerned with getting a laugh at my jokes. I want to make sure I'm getting the right laugh at my jokes. And it's worth asking the question here, what kind of a laugh was this by Sarah? Was this the right kind of laugh? Was it a surprise laugh? 
laugh of mockery, laugh of bitterness, laugh of scorn. And I think we're on good footing to be not too critical of Sarah and indict her with full throttle unbelief. The rebuke in verse 15, after all, is quite gentle. I think her laughter in it, we could hear a tinge of disbelief. The way one commentator put it was this. While Sarah does not wholly believe, nor does she make God out to be a liar. For hopelessness, not pride, is what underlay her unbelief. Because just remember the trajectory of Sarah's life up to this point. You think back to the the plush suburbs of, of Ur, and she had a great life. Reputable husband and Abram, plenty of, plenty of livestock, plenty of servants, all is going very well, quite good, until, until Abram says, honey, pack the bags. We're going to a strange place with stranger people, and apparently the stated reason is that all the families of the world are going to be blessed through us. And as if that is not enough upheaval, For one soul to take, now comes this news that from her dead womb will come new life. Sarah's not naive. Remember, this is the same woman who said, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Come on, Abraham, we know the drill. Take Hagar, the servant girl, and let's be done with it. Let's move this along. You can add all of that up. One log of incredibility on top of another, and out comes this ignition of laughter. Christian, have you ever laughed at the Lord? You'd be surprised this happens far more often than you might think. I've noticed in intense counseling situations, sometimes even right before a person burst out into tears, they let out a little laughter, a kind of a, ha, yeah. Sometimes it's a laughter of anger, of bitterness, of fear, of wanting to believe, of trying to believe, trying to get up on their legs, but they trip and fall, and so out comes laughter. We may speak or think this way far more often than we even realize. A kind of monologue that might go, yes, the thought of my marriage being restored is laughable. The thought of me conquering this unconquerable sin, that is laughable. The idea that this fog of depression would ever lift is laughable. You might be here this morning harboring lower thoughts of God than you even realize. Yes, God is good. Of course he's good. But he's not that good. Oh, yes, God's mighty to save. Sure, of course he's mighty to save. But he's not that mighty. Oh, yes, God is is love, but it's a very ordinary kind of love that fits very well into my realm of expectations and and circumstances, not the kind of love that surpasses knowledge. And Sarah's laughter comes to us as a kind of challenge, a kind of prod. It's meant to prod us and test us and ask, what do I find to be incredible and too marvelous? And that is precisely what comes next in verse 13. The angel says, why did Sarah laugh and say, and just notice there's this rephrasing of what Princess Sarah actually said and draws it back to the promise. The angel says, verse 13, why did she say, shall I indeed bear a child? Is anything too hard, too wonderful, too marvelous for the Lord? Kids, a great catechism question 
to think about this Lord's Day when, when you go home and to roll it around in your mind is the question, can God do all things? Kids, can God do all things? And before you burn out the, burn out the answer, yes. <laughs> think about it for a moment. Can God make a, a square circle? Can God make a rock so heavy that even he cannot lift it? Or more to the point, could God change? Could God lie? <laughs> Which is why the answer, the full answer to that question, can God do all things, is yes, God can do all his holy will. Kids, our great God does all things in accordance with his perfect holy will. Sarah, in a sense, unfortunately, has already pre-answered that question. Her laughter signifies that, yes, in fact, there are some things that are too hard for the Lord. When I measure them up on my understanding, calculated based off of the evidences, yes, there are some things that are just out of reach, that are unreasonable for this great God of ours. A number of years ago, a great theologian named Hervin Bovink published a book entitled Our Reasonable Faith. Our reasonable faith. Now that is a very interesting title, isn't it? It almost provokes the question, is our faith a reasonable faith? Was Sarah asked to believe something that was unreasonable, irrational? Students, you especially, especially need to be thinking about this now because it will not be long if it hasn't happened already before it's made to seem as if there is some kind of conflict between faith and reason between your brain and faith. And I want you to know that that is a false proposal. That is a fake dilemma. In other words, that you can either be a thinking person or a Christian. You can either be a reasoning person or you can have this kind of blind, anti-intellectual faith. That is a lie upon lie upon lie. See, the vital point Bavink was getting at in that title is, is actually quite interesting. He said, the most unreasonable thing you can do is actually to trust in your own reason. The most irrational thing you can do is to trust your own rationality. As the book of Proverbs says, he who trusts in his mind is a fool. Whereas the most reasonable thing you can do, and what Sarah should have done, is trust in the Lord God who reveals himself. And she's in the throes of that struggle and so the angel kindly detracts Sarah away from herself and he points her to the Lord God Almighty as if to say, Sarah, set your mind on things above. Ask the right question. Sarah, I'm not asking you, is anything too hard for Sarah? Is anything too hard for Abraham? Sarah, I'm not asking you, is anything too hard for human progress to accomplish? We so often ask the wrong question. The angel is saying, Sarah, is anything too marvelous for the Lord? And so as we begin to close, let's consider three ways to answer that question from this portion of Scripture. Firstly, plead God's promises. Plead God's promises. Sarah found herself under the weight of this incredible thought. And what she forgot, what she overlooked, you could say, was the even more incredible promise. And it should come as massive encouragement to you that we find out later from Scripture that Sarah did come around. 
that Sarah did believe, as Hebrews says, that by faith Sarah received the power to conceive. And why? Since she considered God faithful who had promised. See, it's not that God is going to do great things at random, great things arbitrarily, that God is going to do for me. Whatever it is that I whip up in my mind and in my imagination. Now, what Sarah came to realize was that God powerfully accomplishes his promises. His promises will be powerfully brought to accomplishment. And the question for you that morning, this morning is, do you know the same thing? Do you strengthen yourself, encourage yourself, encourage others with that truth? Do you plead the promises of God? The great Puritan Thomas Brooks put it this way, God is never pleased. God is never more pleased than when his people urge him with arguments taken from his own promises. God loves to make good on his promises. Which leads secondly to the second point. Secondly, consider the power of God. Consider the power of God. God's promises are backed by God's great power. And remember, Sarah and Abraham's description was that they were, quote, as good as dead, as if to make that emphatically clear that Sarah's womb was a dead womb. And guess what? Scripture does not even give you that much credit. You and I were not as good as dead. We were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, totally incapable to do any spiritual good whatsoever, completely incapacitated to come to God and is in that condition with that power that God worked in us. And that power, of course, does not stop there. This is why Paul prays that he wants to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward whom? Towards us who believe. Do you share Paul's enthusiasm? Does that power, the power of God, compel you to new heights of humility? Does it compel you to worship him and to adore him as the Almighty, to cast yourself upon him in the blanket of his promises? So the promises of God, the power of God. Lastly, consider the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. See, this is not just a generic story. This is a Jesus story. This is not just a story about an old man named Abraham and his wife that had a very nice, happy ending. No, it is a Jesus story because Christ is the seed of Abraham. Christ is the climax of this covenant that God's promises find their yes and amen in him. And so regarding the question, is anything too marvelous for the Lord? The ultimate answer comes in Jesus Christ. For when you were dead, how did God make you alive? Through Jesus Christ. How is God's awesome power put on display but through Jesus Christ? How will God make good on the promise that from a dead Sarah will come a new humanity but only through Jesus Christ? And friends, until you see that, you will not be able to answer the question, is there anything too marvelous, too wonderful for the Lord? For who could open the eyes of the blind? It is impossible. Who could make the deaf hear? It is impossible. Who could set free the prisoners? It is impossible. Who could raise us up from the dead? It is impossible. 
who could make laughter come after mourning? It is impossible. Praise be to our great God who does the impossible through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord God, that you are the God who is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think. It is to you belongs the power in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever throughout all generations. And so we pray, Father, as we have heard your word, that we would receive it by faith, that you would even increase our faith, that we might be those beloved saints who love you, who trust you, who worship you, and who are evermore conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray and ask these things in his merciful name, and amen.